Purple.com. Sleep better for less. Number one in customer satisfaction. Two years in a row with Mattresses Online by J.D. Power Award. Pick the right mattress for you. The Purple Mattress, dual-layered comfort form. Purple Hybrid, breathable, responsible support. Purple Hybrid Premier, less pressure for dreamy floating. The Ascent adjustable base to make it possible to work, sleep, and lounge in bed. Bundle up for big savings, 10% off premium bedding and cushional bundles. Kids mattresses opt, opt, optimally placed grid and softer form for best support, even for little sleepers. Enjoy no pressure support with free sheets and two pillows on select mattresses. Purchase up to 247 value. Sleepy Jones and Purple Pajamas all day comfort with soft stretch inspired pajamas while you work uh, worry about breakfast. Some products are Purple Harmony Pillow, Double Seat Cushion, Purple and Gravity Weighted Blanket, Purple Duvet. Choose Purple for no pressure support for everybody 30 years 30 plus years and 35 patents comfort gel grid technology originally created to make wheelchairs more comfortable than their remembered beds people love purple period positively comfy even for your fur baby everyplate.com Make affordable, crowd-pleasing meals at home. Choose from 14 delicious and affordable recipes that change every week. Everything you need is shipped to your door. Home-cooked deliciousness ready in 30 minutes. Save time and skip tedious trips to the grocery store. Save money and enjoy tasty dinners that work that won't break the bank at only $4.99 per serving. Easy-to-cook recipes that only take six simple steps and will turn you into a chef. And you can skip or cancel anytime. Some examples of meals are sweet chili chicken, super smash burgers, Boswick glazed pork chops, Tuscan beef meatball, Tuscan pork meatballs, crispy blue cheese chicken, chicken sausage meatball soup, sausage chicken pepper, stir fry, garlicky white sauce flatbreads, caramelized onion meatloaves, loaded baked potato chowder. Creamy chicken sausage penne, black bean and pepper jack tostadas, chili garlic shrimp, crispy chickpea couscous bowls, chicken breast, ground beef, and chicken. Just select uh, recipes after signing up. Recommended by 9,000 families. Break the cycle of boring. Here is part 5 of U.S. President number 36. London B. Johnson, 1967. In January and February 1967, probes were made to assess North Vietnamese willingness to discuss peace, but they fell on deaf ears. Ho Chi Minh declared that the only solution was a unilateral withdrawal by the U.S. A Gallup poll taken, July, taken in July 1966 showed 52% of the country disapproving of the president's handling of the war, and only 34% thought progress was being made. Johnson's anger and frustration over the lack of a solution to Vietnam and its effect on him politically was exhibited in a statement to Robert F. Kennedy, who had been a prominent public critic of the war and loomed as a potential challenger in the 1968 presidential election. Johnson had just received several reports predicting military progress by the summer and warned Kennedy, I'll destroy you and every one of your dove friends in six months, he shouted. You'll be dead politically in six months. 
McNamara offered Johnson a way to, out of Vietnam in May. The administration could declare its objective in the war. South Vietnam's self-determination would be achieved in upcoming sub- September elections in South Vietnam would provide the chance for a coalition government. The United States could reasonably expect that the country would to then assume responsibility for the election outcome. But Johnson was elected in light of some optimistic reports, again, of questionable reliability, which matched the negative assessments about the conflict and provided hope of improvement. The CIA reported reporting wide food shortages in Hanoi and an unstable power grid, as well as military manpower reductions. By the middle of 1960. 1967, nearly 70,000 Americans had been killed or wounded in the war. In July, Johnson sent McNamara, Wheeler, and other wish- officials to meet with Westmoreland re- and reach an agreement on plans for the immediate future. At that time, the war was being commonly described at, by the press and others as a stalemate. Westmoreland said such a uh, description pure and fiction was pure fiction and that we are winning slowly but steadily and the pace can excel if we can if we reinforce our successes. Though Westmoreland sought many more, Johnson agreed to an increase of 55,000 troops, bringing the total of five, to 525,000. In August, Johnson, with the Joint Chiefs' support, decided to expand the air campaign and exhausted only Hanoi, Haiphong, and a buffer zone with China from the target list. In September, Ho Chi Minh and North Vietnamese Premier Pham, Pham Van Dong appeared amenable to French mediation, so Johnson ceased bombing in a 10-mile zone around Hanoi. This was met with dissatisfaction. In a Texas speech, Johnson agreed to halt all bombing if Ho Chi Minh would launch productive and meaningful discussions and if North Vietnam would not seek to take advantage of the halt. This was named the San Antonio Formula. There was no response, but Johnson pursued the possibility of negotiations with such a bombing pause. With the war bill arguably in a stalemate and in light of the widespread disapproval of the, of the conflict, Johnson convened a group called the Wise Men for a fresh, in-depth look at the war. Dean Eggerson, General Omar Bradley, George Ball, Mac Bundy, Arthur Dean, Douglas Dillon, and Abe Fortes, Averill Harriman, Harry Henry Cabot Lodge, Robert McMurphy, and Max Taylor. At that time, McNamara reversed to his position on the war, recommended that a cap of 520,000 be placed on the number of forces deployed and that the bombing be halted since he could see no success. Johnson was quite agitated by this recommendation and McNamara's resignation soon followed. With the exception of George Bond, the wise men all agreed the administration should press forward. Johnson was confident that Hanoi would await the 1968 U.S. election results before deciding to negotiate. On June 23, 1967, Johnson traveled to Los Angeles for a Democratic fundraiser. Thousands of anti-war press tried to march past the hotel where he was speaking. The march was led by a coalition of peace protesters. However, a small group of Progressive Labor Party and SDS protesters, activists, placed themselves at the head of the march, and when they reached his hotel, staged a sit-down. Efforts by march sponsors to keep the main body of the marchers moving were only partially successful. Hundreds of LAPD officers were massed at the hotel, and then when the march slowed, an order was given to disperse the crowd. The riot act was read, and 51 protesters arrested. This is one of the first massive war protests in the United States, and the first in Los Angeles. Ending with a clash with riot police, it set a pattern for the massive protests which followed. Due to the size and violence of this event, Johnson attempted no further public speeches in venues outside military bases. In October, with the ever-increasing public protests against the war, 
Johnson engaged the FBI and the CIA to investigate, monitor, and undermine anti-war activists. In mid-October, there was a demonstration of 100,000 at the Pentagon. Johnson and Rusk were convinced that foreign communist sources were behind the demonstration, which was refuted by CIA findings. 1968, as casualties mounted and success seemed further away than ever, Johnson's popularity plummeted. College students and others protested, burned draft cards, and chanted, Hey, hey, LBJ, how many kids did you kill today? Johnson could scarcely travel anywhere without facing protests and was not allowed by the Secret Service to attend the 1968 Democratic National Convention where thousands of hippies, yippies, Black Panthers, and other opponents of Johnson's policies both in Vietnam and in the ghettos converged to protest. Thus, by 1968, the public was polarized with the Hawks rejecting Johnson's refusal to, divide, to continue the war indefinitely and the Doves rejecting his current war policies. Support for Johnson's middle position continued to shrink until he finally rejected containment and sought a peace settlement. By late summer, he realized that Nixon was closer to his position than Humphrey. He continued to support Humphrey publicly in the election and personally despised Nixon. One of Johnson's well-known quotes was, the Democratic Party at its worst is still better than the Republican Party at its best. On January 30th, the Viet Cong and Northern East launched the Tet Offensive against South Vietnam's five largest cities, including Saigon and the U.S. Embassy there and other government installations. While the Tet Offensive failed military, militarily, it was a psychological victory, psychological victory to find, definitively turning American public opinion against the war effort. Ironically, Rosa Cronkite of CBS News voted the nation's most stressed person in February expressed on the air that the conflict was deadlocked and that additional fighting would change nothing. Johnson reacted saying, if I've lost Cronkite, I've lost middle America. Indeed, demoralization about the war was everywhere. 26% then approved of Johnson's handling of Vietnam. 63% disapproved. Johnson agreed to increase the troop level by 22,000 despite a recommendation from the Joint Chiefs for 10 times that number. By March 1968, Johnson was secretly desperate for an honorable way out of the war. Clark Gifford, Clark Clifford, the new defense secretary, described the war as a loser and, uh, proposed, and proposed to cut losses and get out. On March 31st, Johnson spoke to the nations of steps to limit the war in Vietnam. He then announced an immediate unilateral halt to the bombing of North Vietnam and announced his intent to seek out peace talks anywhere at any time. At the close of his speech, he also announced, I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. In March, Johnson decided to restrict future bombing with the result that 90% of the North Vietnam's population and 75% of the territory was off limits to bombing. In April, he exceeded in opening discussions of peace talks, and after extensive negotiations over the site, Paris was agreed to and talks began in May. When the talks failed to yield any results, the decision was made to resort to private discussions in Paris. Two months later, it was apparent that private discussions proved to be, more, to be no more productive. Despite recommendations in August from Harriman, Vance, Clifford, and Bundy to halt bombing as an incentive for Hanoi to seriously engage in substantive peace talks, Johnson refused. In October, when the parties came to close to an agreement on, on a bombing halt, 
Republican presidential nominee Richard Nixon interviewed with the South Vietnamese, making promises of better terms so as to delay a settlement on the issue until after the election. After the election, Johnson's primary focus on Vietnam was to get Saigon to join the Paris peace talks. Ironically, only after Nixon added his urging, did they do so even then they argued about procedural matters until after Nixon took office. The Six-Day War and Israel In a 1993 interview for the Johnson Presidential Library Oral History Archives, Johnson Secretary of Defense Robert Nicktamara stated that a carrier battle group, the U.S. Sixth Fleet, sent on a training exit toward Gibraltar was repositioned back towards the eastern Mediterranean to be able to assist Israel during the Six-Day War of June 1967. Given the rapid Israeli advances following their strike on Egypt, the administration thought the situation was so tense in Israel that perhaps the Syrians fearing Israel would attack them or the Soviets supporting the Syrians might wish to redress the balance of power and admit, and might attack Israel. The Soviets learned of this course correction and regarded it as an offensive move. In a hotline message from Moscow, Soviet Premier Alexei Kosygin said, If you want war, you're going to get war. The Soviet Union supporters Arab, Al- Arab allies in May 1967, the Soviets started a surge deployment of the of their naval forces into the East Mediterranean. Early in the crisis, they began to shadow the U.S. and British carriers with destroyers and intelligence collecting vessels. The Soviet naval squadron in the Mediterranean was sufficiently strong to act as a major restraint on the U.S. Navy. In a 1983 interview with the Boston Globe, McNamara claimed that we damn near had war. He said Kosygin was angry that we had turned around a carrier in the Mediterranean. Surveillance of Martin Luther King Johnson continued the FBI's wiretapping of Martin Luther King Jr. that had been previously authorized by the Kennedy administration under Attorney General Robert Kennedy. As a result of listening to the FBI tapes, remarks on King's extramarital activities, extramarital activities were made by several prominent officials, including Johnson, who once said that King was a hypocritical preacher. That was despite the f- fact that Johnson himself had multiple extramarital affairs. Johnson also authorized the tapping of phone conversations of others, including the Vietnam, Vietnamese friends of a Nixon associate. International trips. Johnson made 11, 11 international trips to 12 to 20 countries during his presidency. He flew 523,000 miles, 841,690 kilometers aboard Air Force One while in office. His October 1966 visit to Australia sparked demonstrations from anti-war protesters. One of the most unusual international trips of presidential history occurred before Christmas in 1967. The president began to trip by going to the memorial service for Australian, Australian Prime Minister Harold Holt, who had disappeared in a swimming accident and was presumed drowned. The White House did not reveal in events to the press that the president would make the first round of the world presidential trip. The trip was 26,959 miles, 43,386.3 kilometers, completed in only 100 and 12.5 hours, 4.7 days. Air Force One crossed the equator twice, stopped at Travis Air Force Base in Honolulu, Pago, 
Pago, Canberra, Melbourne, Vietnam, Karachi, and Rome. 1968 presidential election. As he had served less than 24 months of President Kennedy's term, Johnson was constitutionally permitted to run for a second full term in the 1968 presidential election under the provisions of the 22nd Amendment. Initially, no prominent Democratic candidate was prepared to run against the sitting president of the Democratic Party. Only Senator Eugene McCarthy of Minnesota challenged Johnson as an anti-war candidate in the New Hampshire primary, hoping to pressure the Democrats to oppose the Vietnam War on March 12th. McCarthy won 40% of the primary to Johnson's 49%, an amazing strong showing for such a challenger. Four days later, Senator Robert F. Kennedy of New York entered the race internal polling for Johnson's campaign in Wisconsin, the next state to hold a primary election. Showed the president trailing badly. Johnson did not leave the White House to campaign. By this time, Johnson had lost control of the Democratic Party, which was splitting into four factions, each of which generally could dislike the other three. The first consisted of Johnson and Humphrey, labor unions and local party bosses, led by Chicago Mayor Richard J. Daley. The second group consisted of students and intellectuals who were ferocious against the war and rallied behind McCarthy. The third group were Catholics, Hispanics, and African Americans who rallied behind Robert Kennedy. The fourth group were traditional segregationists, white Southerners who rallied behind George C. Wells and the American Independent Party. Vietnam was one of many issues that splintered the party, and Johnson could see no win, way to win the war and no way to unite the party long enough for him to win re-election. In addition, although it was not made public at the time, Johnson had become more worried about his failing health and was concerned that he might not live through another four-year term. In 1967, he commissioned an actuarial study that predicted he would die at 64, therefore he ended the end of a speech on March 31, 1968. He shocked the nation when he announced he would not run for re-election by concluding with the line, I should not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. The next day, his approval rate increased from 36% to 49%. Historians have debated the facts, factors that led to Johnson's surprise decision. Schiesel says Johnson wanted out of the White House but also wanted vindication. When the indicators turned negative, he decided to leave. Gould said, says that Johnson had neglected the party, was hurting it by his Vietnam policies, and underestimated McCarthy's strength until the very last minute when it was too late for Johnson to recover. Woods says Johnson realized he needed to leave in order for the nation to heal. Dalek says that Johnson had no further. De- domestic goals and realized that his personality had eroded, his popularity, his health was not good, and he was preoccupied with the Kennedy campaign. His wife was pressing him for his retirement, and his base of support continued to shrink. Leaving the race would allow him to pose as a peacemaker. Bennett, however, says Johnson had been forced out of, of a re-election race in 1968 by outrage over his policy in Southeast Asia. After Robert Kennedy's assassination, Johnson rallied the party's bosses and unions Unions to give Humphrey the nomination at the 1960 Democratic National Convention. Personal correspondence between the president and some and some of them were public parties suggested Johnson tacitly 
supported Nelson Rockwell's campaign. He reportedly said that Rockwell became the Republican nominee. He would not campaign against him, would not campaign for Humphrey. In what was termed the October surprise, Johnson announced to the nation on October 31st, 1968, that he had ordered a complete cessation of all air, naval, and artillery bombardment in North Vietnam, effective November 1st, should the Hanoi government be willing to negotiate a signing progress with the Paris Peace Talks. In, in the end, Democrats did not fully unite behind Humphrey and did Republican candidate Richard Nixon to win the election. Judicial appointments with the appointment of Thurgood Marshall, Johnson placed the first African American on the Supreme Court. Johnson appointed the fallen justice to the Supreme Court of the United States, Abe Fortas, 1965. Thurgood Marshall, 1965, the first American, the first African American. Johnson identified. Johnson attempted court challenges to a sledgehammer measure in 1965 and thought it advantageous to have a role in the Supreme Court who he thought could provide him with, a, with inside information as he was able to get from the legislative branch. Abe Fortas, in particular, was the individual that Johnson thought, thought could fill the bill. The opportunity arose when an opening occurred for ambassador to the U.N. with Adlai Stevenson's death. I, Associate Justice Arthur Goldberg said the justice offered to transfer to the U.N. position. Johnson insisted on Fortas assuming Goldberg's seat over Fortas' wife's objection that it was too early in his career. Mrs. Fortas expressed disapproval to Johnson personally afterwards when Earl Warren announced his retirement in 1968. Johnson nominated Fortas to succeed him as Chief Justice of the United States and nominated Homer Thornburg to succeed. Fortis as Je- Associate Justice. However, Fortis nomination was filibustered by senators, and neither nomination was voted upon by the f- full Senate. Post presidency, 1969 to 1973. On inauguration day, January 20, 1969, <coughs> Johnson saw Nixon sworn in, then got on the plane to fly back to Texas. When the front door of the plane closed, Johnson pulled out a cigarette, his first cigarette he had smoked since his heart attack in 1955. One of his daughters pulled it out of his mouth and said, Daddy, what are you doing? You're going to kill yourself. He took it and said, I've not, I've not raised you girls. I've now been present. Now it's my time. From that point on, he went into a very destructive spiral. Historical Michael Beschloss. After leaving the president in January 1969, Johnson went home to his ranch in Stonewall, Texas, accompanied by former aide and speechwriter Harry J. Middleton, who would draft Johnson's first book, The Choices We Face, and work with him on his memoirs entitled The Vantage Point and Perspectives of the Presidency, 1963-1969, published in 1971. That year, the Lyndon Baines Johnson Library and Museum opened on the campus of the University of Texas at Austin. He donated his Texas ranch and his will to the public to form the Lyndon B. Johnson National Historical historical park with the provisions that the ranch remain a working ranch and not become a sterile relic of the past. Johnson gave Nixon high grades in foreign policy, but word that the successor was being pressured into removing U.S. forces too quickly from South Vietnam before the South Vietnamese were really able to defend themselves. If the South fails to the com- if the South falls to the communists, we can have a serious backlash here at home, he warned. During the 1972 presidential election, Johnson endorsed Democratic presidential nominee George S. McGovern, a senator from South Dakota. Although McGovern had long opposed Johnson's foreign and defense policies, the McGovern nomination of presidential plumber dismayed him. Nixon could be defeated. Johnson insisted if only the Democrats don't go too far left. Johnson had felt recommend. Edmund Muskie would be more likely to defeat Nixon. However, he declined an invitation to try to stop McGovern receiving the nomination as he felt it unpopular within the Democratic Party was such that anything he said was more likely to help McGovern. Johnson's protege, 
John Connolly had served as a president, Nixon's Secretary of the Treasury and then stepped down to head Democrats for Nixon, a group funded by Republicans. It was the first time that Connolly and Johnson were opposite, on opposite sides of a general election campaign.